Welcome back to the program. When we think about the Supreme Court and its hushed, hollowed halls, and John Adams' dictum that we're a nation of laws and not of men, words that don't often come to mind are passion, salsa dancing, ambition, and people skills. Yet all of these have been part of the life and Supreme Court tenure of Sonia Sotomayor. Her story is not just a legal story. It's the story of the rise of the Latino population in America and its larger and growing role in the politics of our nation. My guest, Joan Biskubic, tells that story in her new book, Breaking In. Joan Biskubic has covered the U.S. Supreme Court for more than 20 years. She's the author of several Supreme Court biographies, including Antonin Scalia and Sandra Day O'Connor. She currently covers the Supreme Court for Reuters. And it is my pleasure to welcome Joan Biskubic here to talk about Breaking In, the rise of Sonia Sotomayor and the politics of justice. Joan, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Jeff. Great to have you here. It really is fascinating to look at at the life and rise of of Sonia Sotomayor and really see how it reflects the rise and the influence of Latino culture in the U.S. Talk a little bit about that backdrop for her story. You know, that's exactly what got me interested in her as a subject. She's relatively new to the bench, very different from my prior subjects. She had really little record But when I looked at her background and I considered the rise of Hispanics in America, her trajectory matched theirs almost completely. She's born in 1954, the year of Brown v. Board of Education, but also the year of the uh, historic Hernandez v. Texas case, which marked the first time the Supreme Court held that the Constitution protects Hispanics from discrimination with the same force as it protects blacks. Then in 1972, she enters Princeton. That happens to be the year that the U.S. Secretary of uh, uh, Education says that more minorities should be on campus. She's at the scene for all these moments where America is, is feeling the increased presence of Hispanics. In the early 1990s, when she's tapped by Democratic Senator uh, Daniel Patrick Moynihan from New York as someone he wants to recommend to the H.W. Bush the George H.W. Bush administration, she's again right there sort of on the edge of when there's more of an effort to diversify the bench. So you're exactly right, Jeff. She she told me I stepped into a moment of history. And when when I went back and looked at her, the arc of her life, she certainly did. Even beyond that, she was at Yale, I think, when the Bakke decision came down, which certainly had a profound effect on her life. And you know what happened the year that that Bakke decision came down in 1978? It was the year that a recruiter for a big law firm said to her at a recruiting dinner, didn't you just get into Princeton and Yale because you were Puerto Rican? So she not only benefited from the efforts uh, by politicians and policymakers uh, for affirmative action and diversity, she felt its backlash. And there she is in 1978. And this happens to her. This man says, uh, questions her credentials and suggests in front of a a large group of people that the only reason she's gotten into these two fancy Ivy League schools is because of her, uh, the color of her skin and her ethnicity. And she decides to call him on it. She goes to officials at Yale and ends up filing enough of a claim that Yale bars the law firm from recruiting for a year. Now, people close to her advised her not to do it. They said, don't make waves, you know, because 
think back to the 70s, a lot of women and minorities weren't sure how much to sort of disrupt the system. But there she was, uh, having more courage than some of her uh, fellow students and even some faculty members had in terms of uh, disrupting the system. And she felt like what she did was go through channels and wanted to call them on it. The other part that brings all of this together in a kind of perfect storm is her personality and her style. I mean, you talk about that at the beginning of the book when you talk about this salsa dancing episode at the court. But in many ways, it is that style. It is that shooing of the ivory tower, even the ivory tower of the Ivy League that she was a part of, that in many ways contributes to so much of the misperception about her. That's right. She had the credentials that people to this day still question her abilities. And she says that it is very painful to still be doubted. And we can talk, um, if you want, a little bit later about how she's asserted some of those feelings in her affirmative action dissents. But just to uh, respond to your comment about the party that I use at the opening, uh, in the opening chapter, here it is. uh, It's the end of the uh, Supreme Court's annual term. Uh, It's an exclusive affair. It bears all the trappings of this state cultured institution and its privileged occupants, occupants who not a single one had ever come from a public housing project as Sonia Sotomayor did. And what does she do? But she gets up and has all the justices dance salsa with her. And I use that vignette uh, because I believe it reveals uh, a lot about this historic appointee and why it was Sotomayor, who crossed the barrier and became the first Hispanic justice ever, because she was willing to take a chance, at the same time, she was going to make sure that she was credentialed. It's this willingness, and this is where it's different sometimes, I think, when you look at other minorities that have broken color barriers or gender barriers or what have you, that she is willing to stand out at every turn, that she's willing to be seen breaking those barriers. There's there's no sense of her not wanting to shout or not wanting to stand out. She's willing to do that. Yes, Jeff, and she's always willing. She's also willing to talk about what it feels like to be a minority. You know, it's a very it's a very tricky line for her to walk or for anyone to walk because when. When she reaches this place of prominence, here she is at the apex of the federal judiciary, but she's acknowledging that she's still being doubted. And she also wrote so personally in that memoir of hers about her doubts and about um, some of her flaws and failings as a young person and as a woman. She confided in the American people in a way that uh, I can't imagine any other justice doing that. At the end of her first term, she was speaking to students, uh, as she did many times uh, then, and she continues to do, and one student was asking her about feeling different and whether she ever feels comfortable in a setting. And she said, even you know, as a federal judge who'd been around for nearly uh, two decades uh, when she was appointed and then having survived her first term at the court, She said to the student, I don't know if I ever feel comfortable. When you're that different, do you ever feel comfortable? And I've known plenty of women and minorities who've gotten to places of prominence and don't like to talk about being different because they want to fit in more. She's also, in addition to not being afraid to stand out, and this really goes to her people skills that you write about, 
she's not afraid to be a convener. She's not afraid to try and bring people together. There's this kind of Oprah quality that she exhibits as well. She's very good, especially with young people. I've often talked about when I watch her uh, with audiences, if a student in the audience is asking a question and faltering or perhaps reading from her book and stumbling over some words, Justice Sotomayor will go stand near that student as if to say, I'm identifying with you. I'm not identifying with the fancy people in the audience. I'm more with you. And I think that touches on what you're what you're saying about her ability to connect with people. Uh, she she has what President Obama uh, referred to when he was talking about searching for a nominee, uh, a degree of empathy that's uh, palpable when she's speaking to groups. And it was really her personal story that captured Obama's attention. I mean, much has been made of that story, that it was really understanding her personal story that, that was very powerful for him. Yes, there were a couple things there. Uh, let me just take you and your listeners back to 2009. Even though she seems politically to have been a natural choice because she was going to be the first Hispanic, the, uh, obviously that was a constituency that President Obama wanted to speak to, but he had other top contenders, and he was especially close to Elena Kagan, who he named the second year uh, in 2010, and also to a judge uh, based in Chicago on the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals, Diane Wood. And he had been very impressed by their credentials, and he had known them personally. When he interviewed Sonia Sotomayor for the job, it was the first time they had met. Fortunately, she had prepared. She went back and looked through transcripts of Supreme Court nomination hearings, she talked to all sorts of former law clerks. She tried to bone up on any possible question the president could ask her. And she was really ready to be an agent for herself in that meeting with the president. And she was. So he was not only impressed with her personal story, but how she was able to convey that, to convey her connections to her community, but also to show that she had the right stuff professionally and judicially. And that really is the other fascinating part of this story, that how she became the first Latino on the Supreme Court, that as you talk about, Supreme Court justices generally don't happen by accident. An awful lot of ambition and networking and politics and hard work go into the process. That's so true. There's really no, uh, I guess perhaps we could have said that David Souter was a bit of an accidental justice. He was uh, appointed to the court by George H.W. Bush in 1990. And he was not a big networker, even a modest networker, but he was uh, robustly supported by then Chief of Staff John Sununu and then uh, Senator, uh, New, New Hampshire Republican Senator uh, uh, Rudman. And they were old pals of his, and they, they helped him get on the court. But that's, that's rare. Usually... Uh, a nominee needs a vast network of people who's keeping ch keeping the channels open to the White House and someone who's known. And uh, Sonia Sotomayor was not known as well by the administration, but boy, did she have her backers. Uh, people like uh, Guido Calabresi, who's a judge on the Second Circuit and who had been a Yale uh, professor of hers back in the 70s, was very good about going to the administration, uh, to White House counsel Greg Craig and to others to say, 
look, when a nominate when it's time for a nomination, you're going to hear a lot about Sonia Sotomayor, and you're might going to hear some negative things. You're going to hear about her demeanor on the bench. You're going to hear that she might be pushy on the bench. But I, this is Guido Calabrese speaking, Judge Calabrese speaking. I have I've listened to her. I've worked with her, and I've compared her questions to those of men. And what she asks and her temperament is not different from other men. So maybe uh, what you might be hearing about any kind of criticism criticism has a sexism at the bottom of it. And that that was quite helpful to her because someone of the stature of Judge Calabrese helped um, ease the, the minds of some people in the administration uh, when she was under attack by uh, a few other insiders. And as some of your listeners might remember, there was a New Republic magazine piece at the time right. of the nomination uh, that, that was entitled The Case Against Sonia Sotomayor. And part of it went to her, um, her mode of questioning of uh, lawyers who come before the court. On the other side, with respect to her ambition, my favorite story is her relationship with Al D'Amato and how she got the Republican senator from New York to do what she needed to get done to have a hearing with her nomination for the Second Circuit Court. I love that story. Uh, to take us all back to 1998, She's been, she's been a district court judge for several years, and President Clinton wants to elevate her to the Second Circuit Court of Appeals, which is based in New York. And he, she's languishing. She's languishing and languishing because uh, Rush Limbaugh is saying on the air, don't let this woman through. If she gets on the appeals court, she'll be on a rocket ship to the Supreme Court. The Wall Street Journal editorial pages uh, writing commentary about some of her rulings and urging the Republicans who controlled the Senate at that time, not to allow a floor vote on her because they were smart enough to see what would eventually happen, that if she were positioned on an appeals court, she could be a likely candidate to the Supreme Court. So uh, majority, uh, the Senate majority leader at the time was Trent Lott, and he was not going to allow a floor vote on uh, her candidacy for the Second Circuit. And she and her supporters wisely reach out to Senator uh, Al D'Amato, who at the time was running for re-election in New York for his Senate seat. He was running against a member of the U.S. House at the time, uh, Chuck Schumer, who ended up winning. But before that happens, uh, we're, at, we're at the end of October of 1998. We're just weeks before the Senate, uh, the Senate race in early, no- the Senate uh, election in early November. And um, her supporters go to Senator D'Amato and say, look, if you persuade Trent Lott to give Sotomayor a floor vote, we will try to get more Hispanics to back you. We will endorse you. We will, we will help your candidacy against Chuck Schumer. Well, he, uh, he says yes. And it's Senator D'Amato who convinces uh, Trent Lott to go ahead and allow a floor vote. So there they are at the end of October of 1998. She she gets her vote. She gets confirmed. Uh, the White House staffers who have helped her send her a, a dozen white roses. And then we have the election a few days later and uh, Senator D'Amato loses to Chuck Schumer. Uh, he did get probably more of the Hispanic vote than he would have gotten if he hadn't helped uh, Sonia Sotomayor but he still did not get a significant amount of Hispanic vote or enough other constituencies to uh, win re-election. He apparently doesn't have too hard of feelings because in 2009, he encouraged his uh, 
uh, old uh, Republican pals in the Senate to go ahead and vote for her for the Supreme Court. I want to talk a little bit about how all of this, her story, all the aspects we've been talking about, has shown itself even thus far in terms of her rulings on the court, and certainly in terms of standing out and not being able, not being afraid to speak out. Her opinions her in these affirmative action cases really do stand out. They do. They do. And first, Jeff, I, I, I would say that even though she's been on the court um, just five years, she's begun to make her mark uh, primarily by seeking fair procedures for criminal defendants. Uh, her writings reflect the knowledge earned in a big city prosecutor's office. Uh, she worked in Manhattan as a as a district attorney, but they, they also uh, her writings also reflect the years of presiding over trials, as well as the more personal experience of being a Latina. So that's been the main consistent way she stood out on the law. But then what you're referring to is something that I discovered in the course of my reporting a dissent that she had drafted in the University of Texas affirmative action case that actually never saw the light of day, but that I found out about as I was doing my reporting. Just to bring your readers back to that incident, um, it's a case that was brought by a, a white student who was rejected for admission at the flagship university in Austin, the University of Texas at Austin. Uh, the woman's name was Abigail Fisher. And she had been turned down, and she said she was turned down because, um, because she was white, so she sued. And uh, the justices, in taking up her case uh, back in fall of uh, 2012, uh, appeared ready to reject the Texas policy that considered race and to sharply curtail affirmative action. Um, that would have been a decision that would have had a widespread national effect and probably really cut back on affirmative action on campuses. But what happened uh, behind the scenes over the course of uh, a nine-month set of negotiations was that uh, Justice Sotomayor drafted a dissent uh, that was very passionate, and it, it would have marked the first time that she revealed as a Supreme Court justice her views about race in America. And um, when I found out about it, I tried to... I couldn't get the documents, but at least I've got a majority of the justices to tell me what she had written. And they said it was a, it was an opinion that only she could have written with her background. Uh, she thought the court was evading the dilemma of race in America and the reality that she knew very well, that people were still judged by the color of their skin. And she ended up through arguments uh, about race in America and arguments about um, uh insisting that it wasn't time to end uh, affirmative action. She got the more conservative justices to alter their course, to retreat. And at the end of those negotiations, what we saw just as members of the public in June of 2013 was a decision in which Sotomayor was with the majority to send that Texas case back to a lower court, but essentially to still allow the policy to stand. And, we then saw much more of what she was saying uh, the following year in a Michigan affirmative mm -hmm. action case where she ended up dissenting uh, that she didn't, she didn't have the same kind of influence behind the scenes. And in that opinion, we saw what she, uh, the, the strands of what she had argued in the Texas one where she said race matters. The slights that one feels, the snickers that one feels, 
all suggest that perhaps I do not belong here. And she was speaking in the third person. She was not saying, I, Sonia Sotomayor, don't belong here. She was speaking more in the third person as students who might be excluded or anyone who might be excluded uh, from the power structures because of their skin color. And it, it was quite, quite passionate. It didn't make a difference in 2014, but it made a difference in 2013 in this important University of Texas case. Did it make a difference, though, in terms of the, the majority opinion in 2014, the justices knowing where Sonia Sotomayor was coming from and knowing or having some sense, I guess, of the dissent she might write, and, and what influence that had even in the majority decision? Yes. The second time around, it didn't have the force of, of the first time around. But just to remind your listeners about the differences of the two cases, the University of Texas case that became public in 2013, involved only affirmative action. And it was a really important case for university practices nationwide. The second case, the Michigan case, involved a ballot initiative that was approved by voters in Michigan that said, in an array of state policies, including higher education, we do not want race considered. And the question there in the second case was not so much, was not, whether affirmative action policies violate the Constitution, it had more to do with the power of the people in elections and ballot initiatives. And in fact, that case, the majority was joined in its bottom line vote by the more liberal justice, Stephen Breyer, who felt that when you're talking about a public vote by the majority, there's going to be more latitude for racial, you know, to comment on these racial policies than when it's a university uh, acting on its own, as was the situation in the Texas case. And I would just add that Chief Justice John Roberts was um, very upset by what San, uh, Sonia Sotomayor wrote in the, that second case, in the Michigan one that went public. He criticized her for expounding what he called policy, her personal policy preferences and was irked by the airing of the uh, personal strains among the justices. Uh, and he said it does more harm than good to question the openness and candor of those on either side of the debate. Because she essentially said in her dissent in that second case, in the Michigan case, you don't get it. And he took issue with that. To what extent has that had an impact on her relationship with Roberts and with other members of the court? Well, I struggle with how I wanted to cast that because there are differences among these justices and they're in the personal realm um, much more than um, in terms of how they act as judges. You know, think of any small group of people and the internal dynamics. Uh, she, she can cause friction with her colleagues, uh, just like uh, my second judicial subject, Antonin Scalia, can mm -hmm. cause friction uh, with his colleagues. But what I say is that, um, in the book, is that on a personal scale, these differences are not small because these, this is a human dynamic uh, among all nine. But on, in the larger scheme, on the law, these differences don't make that much, don't matter that much. You know, they get over them. And uh, when it comes to an outsider such as myself questioning how they get along, they close ranks. They close ranks. Uh, they have a lot of respect for her, uh, her work ethic, for her personal story, 
Uh, does she cause uh, some of them to roll their eyes even on the bench in public? Certainly. And that's been reported not just by me, but many of my colleagues. But when it comes down to deciding the law of the land, what we all must live on, under, uh, where they differ is on the law rather than on personal style. Except that in her case, it's sort of a two-edged sword because she humanizes the law in so, in so many ways. It can't help but have an impact on personal style and personal relationships. It, well, I, I think in some ways it does. And I have to say that um, I raised the question in the book about whether um, her effectiveness in setting herself apart and her ability to break from her colleagues to make uncomfortable assertions, whether it be in affirmative action or um, in other cases where she's complained about possible injustices of shielding corporations from claims linked to human rights, or when she talks about why lower court judges might make the decisions on death penalty that they on uh, death penalty cases as they do elected lower court judges. You know she's. She's, she will be uh, bolder in her challenges to her colleagues and to other judges. And I don't know if that will help her or hurt her down the road with her colleagues. Uh, there is a lot to be watching for, uh, to see how she breaks from even some of her liberal uh, colleagues down the road to stake um, out ground further to the left, and whether that will make a difference. It might. It, she might be able to move justices closer to her or she might push them away and i think it's a very real question to see what her legacy will be joan biskubik the book is breaking in the rise of sonia sotomayor and the politics of justice joan i thank you so much for spending time with us today thank you jeff thank you we'll take a break i'll be right back <laughs> 